Hey everybody, welcome to Beats, Rye, and Types. This is episode 10, if you can believe it or not. <laughs> um, that, that's pretty incredible. I didn't know if we would make it here, but 10 straight weeks is... I'm patting myself on the back right now. I don't know if you can hear that sound. That's the sound of me patting myself on the back. I just want everyone to know that Aaron is primarily responsible for us making it to episode 10 because I just show up and talk shit for 40 minutes and then he turns it into an actual episode. So he gets 85% of the credit and 50% of the profit because that's just how I work. Because <laughs> I'm a horrible, I'm a great editor, but a horrible negotiator. It's just, how I, it's just what it's like to work with me. Yeah, so you were just listening to uh, an awesome track from last year by this artist, Sakane. I think that's how you pronounce it. He's on the DFA label in Brooklyn and doing kind of an interesting mix of electric, electronic and African vibes. He's from the Sudan originally. Yeah, it's got it's got an interesting vibe, and I'm, I'm I've been listening to that track and that album a lot recently. So we're on the on the eve of Passover, which is you know, uh, MRB and I are of the Hebrew heritage. We thought we thought we would talk about our heritage and a little bit about Jewish food and you know what it kind of means to us. We both have very distinct memories from our childhood and our families of. Uh, being surrounded by specific types of food, and I think that kind of food is has gone away from the public eye a lot. Maybe it's making a little bit of a comeback now, but we wanted to share some of our experiences with with all of you. So, MRB, what what does Passover mean to you? What what do you think of immediately when you when you hear when you hear that word? Well, I immediately just think of family, right? Because that's just how it was. Passover was one of those times of year where we got together and had a special, you know, celebratory dinner. I'm down in Florida with my family right now visiting my parents for the Passover holiday. And, you know, 100% of what I know about Passover and its traditions came from uh, my parents, primarily very strongly influenced from my mother's side of the family since uh, she's the one in our house that does most of the cooking. Uh, Those memories get passed down from her. So that and the other thing that I think of when I think of Passover is having a stomach ache. Uh... (laughs) from eating too much food and the food the food on this particular holiday tends to be very heavy so if you don't know the origins of the holiday you know yada yada jews in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and uh the only food that they had was this uh unleavened uh sort of meal that they were able to cook on hot rocks before they were um before they were tracked down by whoever their particular assailants were at the time, I believe the Egyptians. So yeah, the Egyptians, uh, the, the Pharaoh. Yeah, the story goes that uh, they were only able to make this bread uh, before they left, and it's this flat, crackery substance. And the modern interpretation of this uh, is that, you know, you shouldn't eat anything over the Passover holiday that has leavening agents or any grains of certain varieties. Of course, the 21st century finds us with an overabundance of like alternate uh, grains. So depending on how many loopholes you're looking to find in the Old Testament, (laughs) you can pretty much eat whatever you want. But it is this, I don't know if you associate it with that, Aaron, but for me, I always just think about like, man, the food is, there's something about uh, not using those kinds of things in any of your food that makes it heavy. Or I don't even know if they're directly related. I just feel like this holiday, you, you eat a lot of heavier food on that holiday. 
Yeah, I mean, it's I definitely have a similar reaction, and I've 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 brought you know over the years brought a lot of non-Jewish friends or Goyesha, as my family calls them friends to uh, to the Passover Seder, and pre before tried to describe it to them, and uh, you know the easiest explanation it's it's like Thanksgiving, but with slightly different food, and there's like a lot of talking before you get to eat. <laughs> yes, and there's more wine. And and not the best wine at that, but there is there is a lot of it, and that's usually how I end up describing it. But when when people actually get there, I have a very I have a very very fond memory of bringing my friend Eric to the Passover Seder, and Eric, you know, this tall, slender, lovely eighteen year old boy brought to the Seder when we were in high school, and he didn't know what he was in for. My my family just kept, you know, they're like, oh, do you want some of this simis? Do you want some of this kugel? Do you want some of this, this? And by within like three minutes, his plate was like literally maybe a foot off the table in terms of just a, 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 like a pyramid of food. <laughs> he was such a polite person that he ate all of it. And I, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And uh, I'm still impressed to this day that he was able – I mean, I was like, you know, you don't have to eat all of it. And he's like, no, no, I, I have to. I, he felt really bad. Uh, talk about gut bombs. That's That was definitely – that's definitely a good one. Yeah, so to give everyone a sense, I, I texted Aaron earlier. I found my mom's uh, menu for Passover 2015. And this is for, I think, 12 people or something that are coming over. Okay. Veggie liver, gefilte fish that she makes from scratch, chicken soup and matzo balls, harosis, brisket, turkey, quinoa, potatoes, carrot simis, farfelkogel, those are the savory things, and then for dessert, flourless chocolate cake, apricot squares, and macaroons. So this is my my mom is making all and of this And that's not food. counting stuff that people are going to bring too because I'm sure people are bringing stuff too, right? At least dessert. That's correct. Yeah. They'll they'll bring fruit. Um one of these things apparently Iris is bringing the farfel kugel, so shout out to Iris for bringing the farfel kugel. <laughs> but um uh yeah, so that will give you a sense of, you know, the magnitude of this particular meal. But we thought it would be a good time to talk about this holiday and the related holidays and we've talked about before. I didn't start getting into food until I was, you know, in my 20s or something. Or it took me a while to recognize that I had this kind of, you know, somewhat in the grand scheme of things unique uh uh heritage with respect to the food that my family ate. And over time, I think I have actually you know, tried to incorporate some of the things that we uh, that I learned from my mom cooking this food growing up, and also have started to recognize some of the foods that we eat for these holidays in in foods from other cultures or fancy food or something like that, right? So, like gefilte fish, it's like you know, it, it, it's it's like a terrine almost. So it's very interesting to see something that my mom makes that's pretty close to something that you would. Uh, see in uh, potentially in a, in a fancy uh, French restaurant somewhere and her homemade gefilte fish is the bomb even my even my wife who grew up uh, not Jewish and who really was uh, shook after the first Passover that she had with my family <laughs> mob deep shook <laughs> she was just like oh man that was hard uh, to get through but now she loves it and she really looks forward to the specific things and the key of course is that you don't have to eat everything. You just eat the things that you like and take a bite of this and a bite of that and then and then you can get away pretty pretty, you know, 
not feeling too terrible. <laughs> what about you? What do you what do you associate with uh, what do you associate with Passover? What are your favorite things to eat? I mean, for in my house, uh, at least um, with my dad, he's he's the cook in the family and definitely does it up for Passover. I mean, I definitely family first. There's like you know some crazy ca- cast of characters in my extended family, and they all kind of gather. My my parents' house ends up being the place where we all gather every year, sit in the living room of this Brooklyn apartment, and Every year it's a little different and the the stories have changed a little bit and but it's always it's always fun and always you know especially after the first couple cups of manischewitz once that manny starts rolling you know it's but probably the food i associate most is matzo balls and you know matzo balls has kind of become you know it, it definitely has extended past passover and even growing up i had matzo balls all the time not just at passover but passover was like the the epic feast of matzo balls and there were a couple passovers there where i like I was a I was a picky eater as a as a as a young adult, and I refused to eat anything but the matzo balls. And I would have like seventeen matzo balls or something like that in a single sitting, and then just eat the soup, and that was it. Even to this day, I, I mean, I'll I'll still eat a ton of matzo balls throughout the year. And I've I've hooked my uh, my wife too. Didn't grow up eating any matzo balls as that being like the ultimate comfort food that anytime any either of us are not feeling well it's not chicken soup it's chicken soup and matzo balls is the ultimate cure and so that feeling of like home and comfort i think is probably what i associate most with passover and then there's like the various uses of matzo like matzo brai and matzo pizza and uh, salami and matzo sandwiches. Those are always really good. You got to get that Hebrew national salami and fry it really good and then put it on a matzo. And the matzo is actually kind of irrelevant at that point. You're just eating salami, but it's still it's still part of the tradition. Yeah, it's, it's a shame that you like matzo balls so much because unfortunately you haven't had the world's greatest matzo balls, which are, of course are the matzo balls that my mom makes. <laughs> but I'm sure as you're, I'm sure yours are at most a, a half step worse than hers. They, they couldn't be much more than a half step worse than hers. There certainly are worse. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in my mom's house right now. <laughs> yeah. They're hard to make. Yeah, they're hard to make well. I mean, there's there's they're simple ingredients, but just like any uh, dough product, I'd, I'd say they're hard to make well. But, you know, and it's also funny because you, the, you read the recipes for them or the recipe on the back of uh, the back of the box of matzo meal. And that's basically what most families go by is like some variation on that. There's not much variation in recipes, but then I learned from watching my dad and the recipe is you put the eggs, you whip them, then you add the schmaltz or the fat or oil, whatever whatever you have on hand, and then you just start shaking the matzo meal into the bowl until it feels right, you know, and then you mix it up and then you you have the, the matzo, matzo ball dough. But it's like there's no measuring there. It's just like you shake until it feels right, and that's always the the part that takes a lot of practice that you'll never learn from the back of matzo meal. Yeah, and there's also the dis- the distinction between do you like fluffy, do you like dense, do you like somewhere in between fluffy and dense. So I guess you know that that's pretty much like uh, advanced advanced matzo ball preference uh, there. But we like them we like them we like them real fluffy in my family. And there was one year where my mom my mom was making the matzo balls and 
I don't remember what exactly happened, but they came out like rocks. Like they were like this bizarre, like green color on the inside and you could barely cut through them. And I think that was probably like 30 years ago and we're still talking about it. So <laughs> What do you? What's your? What's your family? You you guys you like them fluffy or dense? No, we're we're on we're on we're the de- we're on the dense side. So yeah, I mean soft but dense. I would say they're sinkers, but they're but they're soft. Like you can you can still cut through them with a spoon. Like they're not dense like cake or something like that. But they're dense. Like they will sink. They they don't they don't float. Yeah, I mean I like fluffy ones too, but. I think if I had to choose, I'm, I'm a, I am a, my father's son, and I, I pick the, the dense ones. I like what you were saying about the recipe, because that reminds me of when my mom, I, tr- I first tried to ask my mom to transcribe the recipe that she uses to make my great aunt Lillian's brisket, which is our brisket recipe. And she's like, yeah, so you use a can of tomatoes, and you pour it in, and then you put in a can of wine. And I'm like, what is a can of wine? What do you mean by that? And she's like, oh, you pour the wine into the can that you just poured the tomatoes into. And that's how you know how much wine you need. And I was like, hey, that's a cool way of measuring that. And then, you know, over time, we over time, we refined it. It is really interesting, right? Because so many of these recipes that we eat, they're like, you know, they're peasant food. Uh, And my mom, you know, they they spend money on like the expensive cut of brisket because you have to buy the kosher brisket and uh do you want to describe what the what the like real brisket cut is Aaron you mean the flat the flanking as opposed to the the fat brisket so you mean yeah so the yeah like the you know the top of the rib is what they use for for that so that's something that you can only get at a kosher butcher usually and uh, that meat is a lot more expensive Normally when I make it, if I can't find, uh, I'll try to find that cut. And if I can't find that cut, I'll just pretty much use short ribs. And then I will find, uh, you know, but I'll amp it up by using, you know, nice wine and, you know, nice fresh vegetables and all that stuff. And the difference is, the difference is pretty remarkable, right? If you just kind of amp those individual things up Uh, the technique is pretty much exactly the same I don't I don't do anything differently technique wise but I just try to use a little bit nicer ingredients and the and the results are are really nice do you mess around with any of any of those have you ever taken one of your one of those old recipes from your family and tried to like fancy it up a little bit a little bit I mean so there's there's like a great part of my family history but that's attached to a sad part which is that my grandfather ran a deli in brooklyn in in the 60s and 70s and his brothers also ran a deli they were both called the zymar deli one was on brighton beach ave and one was on um, avenue q in brooklyn and then their grand their dad was a deli man and their uncles and their their grandfather it's like it was that whole side of the family all ran delis basically and unfortunately because of the the way things worked out, by the time I was born, my grandfather had to, almost a year or two right after I was born, my grandfather's deli closed. My uncle and aunts worked in the deli, but then he continued to work at his brother's deli, and then they moved their deli to Long Island, and basically the deli business kind of went out of went out of favor, which is a sad story that probably won't fit in the half an hour podcast of why that happened. But also, even though he had a lot of those recipes, uh, my both my mom and my uncle, who were the ones who probably worked in the in the deli the most and had the closest 
contact with my grandfather are both vegetarians. So, uh, and possibly because they worked in the deli so much. So even though they, they were the closest and watched all those recipes in the deli get made, they refused to make them or remember them at this point too. So I've lost a lot of that history. But yeah, I mean, I've been making pastrami like I was talking about recently, and that's definitely an ode to my grandfather and those recipes. And same cut, same, you know, the brisket too. And there's, uh, there's a lot of a lot of funny things about that and about that, you know, the brisket, what we're talking about, you know, the belly of the uh, of a cow, it's Jewish food and it's, as Mike was saying, kind of peasant food because it used to be the cheapest cut. But actually, I was just reading a news story the other day that there's a brisket shortage in America and all because of the rise of barbecue and a lot of other reasons. And it's it's becoming a, a problem and raising the prices of, of brisket and barbecue across America because of this brisket shortage so it's funny and a lot of that has to do with bar american barbecue but also jewish deli and pastrami and that whole thing that actually this thing that used to be peasant food got turned into something that was a little bit more you know and um people seek it out and it's funny to me to think that yeah you know i have to seek out good good brisket when it used to be that was the cheapest thing that people could buy in the store and could afford and that's why it got spiced and cured and all of that stuff and turned into turned into sandwich meat yeah there's a lot of stories like that right people say the same thing about oysters and right like early early 19th century new york city that was food that uh, anyone could afford like a penny an oyster was sold out of a a push cart <laughs> in lower manhattan so when you make when you make that pastrami and it's like a long meditative process is that is that some way for you to like fi- find a connection to the people that made it before you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I knew my I knew my grandfather pretty well later in his life, but didn't necessarily know him completely as a deli man. And I, I regret that I never got to to see him in action in in his prime when he was running his own business there. But yeah, it's definitely you know one I love it, and I actually there the the clearest memories I have of my of my grandfather as a when i was young is one he would bring he would bring chinese food over every week to my parents house which is funny because he would bring it from long island to my parents house in brooklyn even though we had you know tons of chinese places right around us he thought the best chinese place was in long island in long beach um you know right by him and he would get chinese food and bring it to brooklyn for us to have spare ribs and all of this stuff and then the other thing was he would also bring like a white you know, butcher paper wrapped stack of pastrami and corned beef. And my brother and I both have the exact same memory of him bringing these stacks of corned beef and pastrami. And they were meant for us to like bring them to school with us. Like we were supposed to get this pastrami and then take it, take it to school with us for the rest of the week. But what we ended up doing was just, just devouring it in the fridge before it was, before it could ever hit a sandwich. Stand there with the fridge open you know, pulling out slices. So definitely making that and trying to make that from scratch is definitely a way to reconnect with that and a very powerful way at that too. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't, uh, I don't have, I don't have similar memories because I didn't have any deli, deli guys in my family, but we definitely went out. We definitely went out to get deli. I remember uh, going, we had a place out on Long Island where I grew up called Ben's. That was our favorite deli place. Uh, and even by then, it was somewhat, somewhat special occasion-y food because the sandwiches and everything wasn't wasn't cheap to go and have, you know, a couple corned beef sandwiches. And it's so funny that, like, 
the way that these delis serve the sandwich with like three times as much meat as you could possibly <laughs> hope to eat off from a sandwich at one time. So you order one sandwich and then a side of bread and everyone's like making their own rye bread and mustard and corned beef sandwiches on the side or going into the city uh, and going to Katz's with my dad where he taught me a couple good tricks. Uh, one trick is to, if the line is too long, uh, for the pastrami, you just go to the sausage and hot dog counter where there's never a line and you get a hot dog and you eat the hot dog <laughs> while you're waiting online to get pastrami or corned beef. Pro pro tip. <laughs> exactly. Pro tip. I don't want to see any of you waiting online for the corned beef without a hot dog in your hand. Um, and then the other one was, you know, you would, I, I didn't realize, but there was like a preference, right? Like you could have, you know, you could get it you want, might want it fatty, you might want it lean, uh, you might want to make sure he's cutting it the right thickness for you, you put a dollar down on the counter and he gives you a couple pieces while you're waiting. I mean, this is the, that's kind of the, one of the essences of like, you know, food, the, that food, food is people and you know, you're, you're dealing with a person on the other side of the counter and so you should just treat it treat it as an actual interaction between you and the other person where you say hello and and you know tell them what you'd like and thank them very profusely if they made it the way that you liked it and, and all that kind of stuff i just really remember learning the social side of of eating uh through going to those establishments so um i have very i have very fond memories of that and eating food at these delis that you just didn't didn't see anywhere else you know stuffed derma and these sandwiches and i'll just like what what even is some of this food that people eat um always always confused me but uh i really uh, i think the the holiday time is a good time to reflect on all of the all of those awesome uh all of that awesome food but all of those lessons that we learned too it's pretty cool to think about now that we both have kids, pass how how we'll pass those uh, things on to our kids is pretty fun to think about. I'm really looking forward to taking my kids. I hope there's still some authentic uh, deli somewhere that we can we can take people to. It's sad because it's just a dying, you know, it's a dying. There's a dying breed, and there's like a new wave of people trying to bring it back. But you know, it's a little different. I mean, I'm I'm really happy about that and excited about it. But it's definitely different. It's not. It's 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 almost like it's too nice, you know. Delis need to be a little shabby and yeah, that, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Like, what do you? I have mixed feelings about it too. Um, but what do you think about like the fancy hipster Jewish deli? Like, is it ultimately a good thing because the food survives? Is it ultimately a bad thing because it's not really the same thing? Like, what what are your what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. You know, it's I I definitely um a pre a, super appreciate those uh places because a lot of the a lot of the places like i'm thinking of like there was this place wise sons in san francisco that um is made great food and was you know actually right around the corner from where i was working there so i got to go there a bunch there's a couple in new york too i'm trying to think of like a good example but oh i guess my land obviously is probably the the big example but they're they're good you know and the food is good and i'm happy that some of this food is getting cooked and eaten and appreciated, you know, because it's, you know, bottom line, the reason that Jewish delis were popular when they were popular is because in the end of the day, it was like really delicious food, you know, regardless of, regardless of the, the origins. Yeah, there's, there's something, 
awesome about that, but also something a little sad because I hate to be like an old sound like an old timer, but yeah, the, a lot of the stuff like you're saying, like the stuffed derma and the chopped liver and things like that, that you know maybe not aren't the the sexiest food products or kind of those those things are getting edited out of a lot of these menus. Not that necessarily we should replicate it word for word these old menus but at the same time it's like it's definitely an edited and repackaged version of the past i'm not sure how much of it is just nostalgia and how much of it is it is it we're presenting this as really good food you know yeah yeah i mean i uh i'd rather have them around than nothing at all um of course but there is something about the a couple years ago uh, when we were still living up in the city um we lived out in midwood not far from probably where the avenue q zymar deli was and uh there was still an there was still a deli uh on avenue m and it was like, a, it, I, I don't even know if it's still there anymore, but it was like a time warp. I mean, it was like you walked in, everyone was pretty much, you know, over the age of 65. Uh, you know, they're all arguing with the waiter about, you know, <laughs> their their food in, for, in some capacity or another. And uh, the food and the atmosphere uh, and everything was just exactly the same. Uh, and it was, it seemed like a rare thing, you know, that, you know, I used to go in there and, and think, you know, this place can't last forever, you know, just because it, it just had that, it just had that air about it of, you know, uh, it really felt like just like the places that I went when I was a kid. And the food was, you know, the food was mediocre. I mean, it wasn't amazing. It wasn't terrible. Um, but I think it's hard to sustain selling uh, traditional food like that and to maintain a passion for making it good every single day. And uh, I can definitely see how people that have been doing that for their whole lives would end up kind of throwing the towel in as, you know, kids in the neighborhood are going to Chipotle instead of going to their deli and, and all that kind of stuff. So. As usual, there are a lot of complex uh, cultural things at play that make these things work or not work. But, you know, I, I guess it's kind of up to us uh, in our families to uh, keep these traditions alive. And definitely, Aaron, you've done a really good job of uh, doing that. Cool. So uh, thanks, everyone, for allowing us to share our fond uh, memories of Jewish cuisine uh, and listening to us pontificate about its future. Uh, we have some some fun guests planned in future episodes. And uh, as usual, if you have any comments or suggestions, uh, hit us up. Um, anything else you wanted to add, Aaron? Yeah, so I just just a little shout out at the end, of course. So you had to listen to this whole thing to get to our uh, to get to our plug. But as promised in a in a earlier episode about pizza, MRB and I have been working on a book together for many years at this point. But we're actually sitting down and writing it finally since we were inspired by doing this podcast um, about making pizza at home and all the details and all the tips and tricks. And you can find out more about it at beatsridetypes.com slash pizza. And we'll obviously put a link in the show notes. But sign up for an email list for now and we'll keep you updated. And obviously we'll probably keep telling you about it on the podcast as well. 
All right, that sounds good. Everyone hit us up if you uh, are interested in being a recipe tester or anything like that. Let us know so we can know how, how hard we should be working on this thing that we've literally been talking about for eight years. <laughs> cool. All right, have a, good, have a good week, everyone. Happy holidays. Peace. It's been some time.